This podcast is powered by Pivotal Moments Media. Check out our education, content, and more at PivotalMomentsMedia.com. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Life After the Military, a show completely focused on reversing the trend of veteran suicide, homelessness, and problematic transitions by helping veterans transition from military to civilian life and strengthening the mental fitness of our active duty military members, veterans, and their families. Our show is powered by Pivotal Moments Media, an organization on a mission to strengthen mental fitness worldwide for all. Go check them out at PivotalMomentsMedia.com to learn more. My name is Lee Elias, and I'm joined, as always, by my good friend and co-host, Howie Cohen. And we are privileged to have our special guest, Rochelle Futch, with us today. Rochelle is a Marine Corps veteran, current special operations military spouse, and advocate for military employment, preventative mental health care, and reform. She has worked with Congress members on policy reform and has been invited to the White House on behalf of her work and advocacy efforts. Rochelle is a highly sought-after public speaker who has spoken on topics such as suicide prevention, resilience, and military cultural competency on global platforms, and she's been featured on media outlets such as CBS, ABC, NBC, Fox News, Life After the Military, and more. I had to throw us in there. She is also an accomplished four-time published author, printing more than 10,000 copies and selling thousands of digital editions of her workbook, Unpacking Your Emotional Ruck. What a great title that is. Rochelle, it is truly our pleasure to have you with with us today. Welcome to Life After the Military. Thank you so much for having me. I'm I'm really happy to be here. Hey, with a resume like that, we're happy to have you, and we're happy that you're happy to be here too. But uh, typical first question we always jump into. Again, you're a Marine Corps vet. You served four years. Share with our audience how you prepared and executed your transition out of the military into the public sector. I'm sorry, private sector. So so gracefully, and obviously you've done a lot of work since then. And let us know what went well, what did not go well. What would you do differently knowing now what you know. Yeah, it it seems like I know so much more now than I did then. I served in the um, late 90s. And so um, when you got out, you just took your, you know, week long of classes and then you you leave and then you're expected to step right back into civilian world and, and live your life. There wasn't as many resources available. We weren't in, you know, just finishing a war or still having a lot of conflicts at that time. And so what I did was I just figured I would go to school, use the GI Bill, which was one of the reasons that I went in. Mm -hmm. And yeah, it was kind of a messy transition because um, it was difficult. It was difficult going to school, having served in the military, sitting in classes with people who were like partying, giggling, having fun. And I just wanted them to, you know, shut up, (laughs) behave, (laughs) keep their bearing, (laughs) show respect, all those things. And so, yeah, it was difficult. It was a difficult transition to see like um, this purpose that I had and then just kind of, eh, I guess I'm just going to classes now. I don't know what to do and working part-time jobs, things like that. So what would you do differently then? Knowing what you know now, Rochelle, because like you said, there are so many resources that are available now and and you're very engaged in that that whole area as well. What, what would you, knowing what you know now, what, how would you advise someone or mentor someone or coach someone who's going through the process that they could, so they could be maybe more effective and more successful in their transition? I would say actually get with mentorship early on, have somebody that's been through it, connect with them, plan early. And if you're going to school, 
there are so many veteran centers within universities now and colleges connect with them right away. I, I don't even, I can't even tell you if the colleges I went to had a vet center, then I just was detached. It was, you know, I did four years. I was still really young and, um, I, I didn't even know that the community was out there. And so actually connecting with people who've, who've walked that path, standing after those classes you take and talking to some of the people that are providing the classes, um, connecting with them, finding out what the resources are locally in your community. Basically, all we had was the the local job center. You'd go down and they would look at your military service and they'd go, oh, let's type in your MOS. And they would say, oh, this is something similar. And they would help you with some resume writing. But that was really it. There wasn't a lot of other impact conversations. There wasn't, um, let's step into a purpose or community or things like that. So I would really say, find a mentor. I mean, you should have a mentor anyways, no matter where you're at in life, there should be something, some conversations with people that have walked it before you have some sort of experience that you need. And so that would be my biggest advice. So how did you make the transition into, because you're the, the, the and we're going to talk about this here in a second, the work you're mm-hmm. doing now, I'm, I, I, we're, I think we're all interested in how did you then transition from from your time in the classroom, you know, obviously you're, you're, you're a Marine for four years in the classroom, mm-hmm. getting your education and, and to do the kinds of things you're doing now, how did you get to the point? How did you get to this point? What, tell us the path you took and what kind of motivated you. And, and I, I think there's probably a lot for our audience to learn from that process that you went through. So when I was in the service, I was a fiscal budget technician, which basically meant I worked for comptroller and we handled how much money each division got. We inspected them, audited them. And when I got out, it was important for me to just finish my college degree. I had been taking classes kind of, you know, here and there, taking a class on my lunch hour, taking a class there. So I got out, I got a job kind of similar to finance, um, but started going back to school and During that process, I started taking kind of social science classes. They were kind of fun for me. Um, I was really fascinated with behavior and things like that, but I was really reckless. And so I was still partying, drinking a lot. You know, when you drink and you're not mentally healthy, bad things happen. And so I definitely was, you know, suicidal, but not actively suicidal when I was sober and um, just living a reckless life, Mm. Um, but still very squared away. It seemed like I was very functional if you were the, on the outside looking in. And I ended up starting volunteering as a CASA, a court-appointed special advocate in my undergrad program. And um, for those of you who might not know what that is, that's the voice for children in foster care in the court system. So you get sworn in as kind of a member of the court and you interview everybody kind of in that child's life. And then you get to go and be the voice for the child's need in court. And I think that that's really where I started connecting more to purpose again, Mm -hmm. something outside of myself, something that felt like I was making a difference and it was in line with kind of my undergrad. And it was really on the advice of just somebody that I knew that said, if you're switching careers from like finance into something more of the social services field, whether you're going to work in a nonprofit, whether you're going to work in some sort of helping profession, your resume doesn't show that. So you should start volunteering now to get that on your resume. And that was really just the advice that I got. So I kind of leaned in. I don't even know why I picked CASA. I think I saw an online program at the same time they were looking for volunteers. So I said, okay, sure. Went and did that. And it just made such a huge impact in seeing that here are these small people that have no voice 
And here are these adults that really um, are, are kind of doing some bad things or, or not finding their own place and they're lost. Um, and it's so impactful for the small children. And I kept thinking, what is going to happen when these kids grow up? Like where, what's going to happen for them? And so from there, I ended up um, getting a job in the juvenile institution, working for um, a boys prison and counseling in a boys prison after I graduated. And so that was another impactful thing where in every single um, youth that I interviewed, there was these common vulnerabilities. And a lot of them were unstructured free time at home, not having an adult at home. And again, I was like, ah, here's another time where parents are just not, you know, able to do what needs to be done in order to help cultivate this young person. And so that sort of led me down that social science realm where I kind of ended up working with parents and families and things like that. You know, Rochelle, I can tell you, you were saying you're not sure why you went into it. Uh, And I can share from our experience on the show that uh, it's astounding how many veterans find their purpose in helping others again. Right. Um, and and I'm, I, I've noticed that as a trend on on the interviews here is, well, I did this job, I did that job, but I do this now and I help other people. It is just so ingrained in those in the service of my job is to help other people. So I'm just trying to say that to you is it's not surprising mm-hmm. to me at all that you found meaning in a job that not only helps other people. I mean, you're helping underprivileged youth, which is a mm-hmm. massive calling. Right. So I just think that, that that's a big note for me is that, you know, and you said it too, like when you, when you got out and you were sitting in class and, you know, people don't know what's going on, right. I I can see how the pathway to that would be open. So I think my suggestion along with yours, with finding mentors to those listening is note that you probably have a desire to continue to serve. Not saying that's everybody. Right? There's definitely some entrepreneurs out there that just want to start a business. We've Howie and I've met some of them, right? But for the most part, I believe almost every single guest we've had on this show, Howie, has said, "No, I found this pathway in serving others once again, and that is how I found my purpose." Yeah, I would, um, you know, as an entrepreneur as well too. I love what you said, and every good entrepreneur knows that serving their customer or their client, right, right is is better than that's the mission that really gets them to be successful entrepreneurs. Right. Because if you're just in it for the money or in it for the job or in it for yeah. the free time, you're probably not going to be as successful as those who are connected to that purpose. I was just going to echo that, that I find much more, and there are people who, who will say this is easy for me to say, but I find much more enjoyment in the help and the service I provide than the money that it creates. I, again, it's a catch 22. Yes, you need the money <laughs> to make the business operate. <laughs> But I, I I stand firmly that we are successful because that is not exactly the priority. The priority is to serve those that believe in us. I mean, it sounds almost like the military, right? And in doing so, we have earned their dollars or their their money. You, when you do it the other way around, you might get a flash in the pan, but it, it doesn't work, right? And even if you look at the business, the biggest companies in the world, they started that way, I should say, right? I, I think a lot of them still live that way, but they started that way. If they want to provide a service. Um, so anyway, yeah, I, I don't want to keep the conversation on that because we, we have to get to the work that you do now. Uh, but as, again, when I see these observations, I like to throw them out there because I, I don't think a lot of shows like this exist. And Howie and I have done basically two years of research now to find these commonalities. And that's that's one of them. So it's no surprise to me that that 
you found a path in, in serving others once again. Yeah. Well, what's it, fascinating is 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 that path led you to to helping young young men young men and women. Uh, so I'd love like you just so you kind of talked a little bit about that already leading up to this, Rochelle. But I think here's an opportunity. I, I we're all interested in learning what what work are you have you done are you doing right now with adolescence and and what i'd really like to to to, to get more understanding of is um the work with the you created solution focused parroting tell tell us what led to that you know how you arrived at the need for that and and what it actually you know what kind of uh, uh support to parenting that it provides when i was um in my private practice in the community. Um, so from working in the juvenile justice system, I ended up getting my master's degree in social work from the University of Washington. And I ended up getting laid off, which was kind of shocking because the job that I ended up taking um, just wasn't budgeted for. And so I was finishing my master, master's degree. I was doing my practicum at the Warrior Transition Battalion, um, working with military families. And I was providing skills group dialectical behavior therapy or DBT skills group in the community. And I was working with youth. So um, ages, I would say 15 to 18 were in the skills group. And one of the young ladies came in and she would, she would read a book or she would sit there and she wasn't really actively engaged. In fact, um, when we did her interview the first time for the skills group before that, and I, I didn't accept her in the group because she just didn't show motivation and engagement and ready to participate. And that can be a really, a really big distraction for other people in there. My co-facilitator kind of let her in the group and I'm like, oh, here we go. This is going to be a challenge. And, and, you know, treatment interfering behaviors really impacts the entire, the entire group. And so she was sitting there with her arms crossed and um, she kind of made this comment of, I don't need another adult telling me what's wrong with me. And I'm like, yeah, that makes sense. You know, you, you don't, want to sit here and have us lecture at you because skills training where we're, it's a didactic training and there's a lot of participation in it. And so I said, well, you know, and I kind of really validated her experience and gave her the floor for a minute, you know, like you you've been through this before. What would you say? And I allowing her to kind of be her own voice around the topic we were discussing engaged her and it engaged the other youth in the program. And they started really connecting and I really just got to thinking, you know, we really do kind of come in as adults as if we're this expert. We're not coming alongside them. We're not listening. We're not sharing their experience. We're like, we're the professional and I'm going to tell you what you need to do. And just from there on, I flipped it. I said, you know what? I'm not going to do that anymore. I'm not going to sit with youth who a lot of times are in front of me because they're in an invalidating environment at home, whether it's they're being bullied at school, whether their parents are the star athletes and they're the artist kid and it's just not a goodness of fit for their household. I'm not going to sit there and continue to be a part of the problem where we're just focusing on and magnifying this kid as they're not um, adjusting well enough to what we think they should be or what they think sh they should be doing. And so right there, I said, we need to start focusing on this is a system issue. It's not a kid issue. And how can we start looking at what's working? What's working well for them? What's the solutions that are already in place that we can magnify versus magnifying that problem? And that's really kind of where that solution-focused program came from. We talk so, in sports all the time, Howie, about meeting kids where they're at. And it, it took me too long to understand, you know, that that what that means, you know, and, and, and Rochelle, I'd love your, your definition of that too, but 
it's a two-parter for me. It's a 14-year-old has the right to have their 14-year-old problems. That's the first half. And then the second half is having the empathy to even try and remember what it would have been like to be 14, but to understand that and not be judgmental on, oh, you think it's hard now, just mm-hmm. wait. Because when you're 24 or 34, like, first off, the kid doesn't care. Second of all, second of all the, it, it would be like a 75-year-old coming to me and be like, well, you don't know what it's like to be 75. There's a reason that doesn't happen. <laughs> right? right. So, yeah. So just, I just wanted to comment on that. Sorry, how I didn't mean to cut you off. It's just, oh, no, 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 no. It's a big I, part of I, it for me. I think this whole, the whole concept is fascinating because it, it kind of reminds me, I, I've done a few coaching classes. I, I'm talking about like towards a certification. I, I, I didn't commit to, to finishing it, but it, it kind of reminds me when you're truly coaching, you're really just asking questions and drawing things out of the individual you're coaching or the folks you're coaching. You're not telling them what to do. You're not solving their problems. In many cases, they have the answers that they need. It's just your ability to draw it out of them, right? And being patient enough and skilled enough to ask simple questions quick, short questions and just let them, let them talk. And it sounds to me like you kind of arrived at that in, in, in this, uh, in this path that you took, I, I'd love to hear more about it. And I'd really like to, to as, as much as you're willing to um, describe more about the actual work, workbook, some of the principles in the workbook that maybe folks can take away from this, uh, from this conversation. In that, in that moment, it was just really like, it flipped my, my view on didactic trainings. Because as much as I knew this information would help them if they applied it, I really said, we have to start first with finding the kernel of truth in this young person's experience or any person's experience. And um, there's been a lot of times I've worked with other practitioners and they're like, I know this kid's lying. I know this isn't truth, but it's their truth. You know, it might not seem like it. And if I can meet them with their truth, where they're at um, and just believe them and take it for what, you know, what their words for what their words are, we're going to move a lot faster. We're going to circle back to, okay, well, maybe that wasn't the most accurate reflection of the experience way faster than if I'm challenging them. And that's what rapport building is, right? We have to, we have to build a rapport first, or we're never going to get anywhere. Now, here's a question for me, kind of thinking uh, macro here. Does that approach apply to more than just children? Does that apply to a transitioning veteran? Does that apply to a graduating college senior, right? Where we consistently sometimes lecture, sometimes just share, well, here's my experience without even asking, where are you at? Right. right? Um, and and again, look, I, I, I think I say this quote now every, every show I do, but it, it's, it's the, the Whitman, uh, uh, or quote, right, of the be curious, not judgmental that everyone's saying from mm-hmm. Ted Lasso, right? Um, if you come into a conversation and just tell the person what you think, you're automatically being judgmental, even though you might not mean to. Have the curiosity to want to know where this person is at, right? So again, the question again, sorry, Rochelle, was just, does this apply to more than just children? Yes, Yes, it applies to everyone. Right. Any interaction you have with a person, I mean, I'll always joke that God gave us two ears and one mouth for a reason, right? We should be <laughs> listening more than we're talking. And we do have experience. You know, those of us who have kind of walked that path, maybe before someone else, we have that experience. But we have to remember that that experience was gained through doing, right. not by being heard. Or, you know, we should we should listen to those that wise advice. 
but we're really going to have to figure it out ourselves. Sometimes that experience comes from years of doing, and it's hard to throw that on somebody. Well, the other thing too is I find this amazing too, when you think about it, we all have our own story. We're all living in our own kind of little story. And there are, as of this week, there are 8 billion stories on this planet and every one of them is a little different. And we walk around a lot of times thinking, well, it's the same as mine because you're a human. And it's like, that is just not how it works. (laughs) You know what I mean? There's 8 billion people on the planet with different experience. And look, there's, there's a dystopian inside of this or dystopian of, well, we're all just upset and horrible and miserable. There's also the, the, an optimistic side of, can you imagine what would happen if we all just shared our experiences and listened to each other, how, how fast we would progress, you know, echoing what you said earlier. Uh, now, obviously the balance has to be there somewhere and we probably tip back and forth on that seesaw. But, but I kind of remind myself that even when someone cuts me off on in traffic, mm. that I don't know what's going on in this person's life today. Just again, obviously this topic of the show is military transition, you know, uh, veteran wellness, but we all have to keep this in mind, no matter where you're at, right. To meet these people mm-hmm. where they're at, be curious and, and have the understanding that your story is not across the board. Uh, share, but, but listen, two ears, one mouth. Perfect. But, I, but I'll <laughs> tell you why I think it's also an, importantly, um, and, and you're right when we talk about how we define the program, but you know, we're also, we're also starting to now transition ourselves into more what's the impact on the spouse what's the impact on mm-hmm. on the children and i think this is really valuable information for transitioning veterans who are going through a, look they're dealing with their whether male female they're dealing with their own challenges absolutely but I, I think the recognition that their spouses and their children are going through the transition with them as well right mm-hmm. and i think that we're i think this can be so impactful is is arming now you know the 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 parents with the, a tool set to better not only manage their transition but how they're going to help manage their family's transition through the process as well and that's why I, I find it so valuable Rochelle mm-hmm. and it sounds to me like you're doing that work as well with um, with military and first responders um, but I, I would love for you to describe that work but are are you are you finding that you have a, a an audience then in with the military and how they can better manage their own challenges inside inside their own families whether in active duty in the military or when they're when they're transitioning out of the military yes um in fact what I love what you said too howie was that it it's a systems thing right it's a family system. And we need to remember that outside of our own experience is these other people, whether it's your spouse, your kids that are having an experience too. And we are so conditioned to be in survival mode. Mm -hmm. What is the challenge in front of us right now? And I often hear that we're going to kick that can down the road to, well, when we get out, when we do this, when we get here, when we get to this next station, when we are here. But there always brings new challenges as well. And if we're not looking at what are we doing right here, right now to be the most successful we can be for each member of our family. And I think that's what it really comes down to. And that's kind of what I learned was that when the parents were learning these skills, right? I'm like, don't give me your kids, give me you. I wanna work with you guys because when you regulate your emotions, when you handle stress and you do that well, your kids will automatically do better. 
They will. And so if you're going through something difficult, we, um, the reason I ended up creating and launching these programs is because we were PCSing from Joint Base Lewis McCord down to North Carolina at Fort Bragg. And I had to close my brick and mortar mental health practice, something I had built for six years. I had clients and, um, I, that, that was not a fun time in our family. And I was like, get ready to shake my husband's hand going, nice knowing you see you in three years when you come back, but I have a life here and this is important to me. This is where I want to be. You know, clearly that didn't happen. Um, and I, and I got more virtual and I got more portable in my, in my job. Um, so I could do those things, but a lot of people aren't portable. And so when you think about all the aspects that the military or being a first responder family or any family is going through all these different touch points, right? These different touch points of how it impacts every member. If you're not sitting down and having conversations, I know there were studies done, um, especially in military special operations that family dinners just aren't happening. They're not sitting around the table and having family dinners. That's one small thing, right? I think that's across the board in in, in America and, and, and maybe even in major parts of the world right now. I mean, the, the, the home life I grew up in, we had dinner as a family every night. And I knew this and I valued that. And, and I wasn't even doing it as I became a parent. You know, we weren't, I, we weren't often eating together as a family every night. And I even, and I knew that how, how much I valued that as a child. Yeah. We're exhausted, right? We're exhausted. And if somebody wants to walk away with their plate and give us the moment, we're taking it and we're taking those moments more and more and more because we're parenting from exhaustion. There's a lot to unpack there, but no, I, I, I agree with both of you. You know, my wife and I make an attempt every day and we do successfully typically have dinners of family. Now, keep, keeping in mind, my kids are eight and six. Uh, it's a little mm-hmm. bit of an easier age. I think, Howie, to your point, what I have to watch out for is when they get to those kind of teenage, late teen years, um, mm-hmm. when, when, you know, life happens, there might be sports, there might be things, but finding that time, uh, that community uh, of a family is super important. And we, we are losing that. Rochelle, this kind of brings up a question I thought of earlier that I think it's the right time to ask. This is more my curiosity uh, peaking here. And, and I've talked to Howie about this in the past. There's a catch-22 with service in the sense of you're serving and those people are serving so that the people you're serving for don't have to care, right? You serve and protect us Mm -hmm. so that society doesn't have to care. But at the same time, my opinion is that there's too much of a lack of awareness of what service people are doing from the community. So, Howie, I'm throwing this out to you too. What can we do as a society or what do we need to do more of to, one, garner a better appreciation of those that serve, right? And what service is, right? Because I I believe that that is something that is lacking in our society right now, an understanding of service. And I'm not even just talking military now. I'm just talking service in general, right? What can we do better as veterans, as spouses, as active duty, and then as civilians to create more conducive conversations to understand these people are serving to protect your freedoms, um, however you want to experience them, and that I think some, I don't know if gratitude is the right word, but just some understanding is, is in, in, is due that we have this in our society. Do you know what I'm trying to say? We need more of that. And I, and I don't know quite how to create those conversations. Yeah. I think what we're seeing a lot of sometimes is the loudest voice is what's heard. Mm. And there's a lot of problems in the military. Right. And so we hear a lot of screaming of, well, if you are an employer, you need to hire vets and here's why. Um, we, Mm. we don't get Mm. down to the core of what is our service 
actually doing? How are we contributing? What does that contribution mean? And, you know, it, it's, it still comes down to like, what are the conversations we're having with young people? How are we getting to them earlier? So they understand what that means. Right. How many families are volunteering on the weekends? How many are showing service in some small way, whether it's in their community, at their church, um, at their schools? And a lot of times what I see with parents is they are rescuing and doing because they came from an environment where people didn't do for them. And so now we, and, and, and we do that. I do that as a, as a, as a military, you know, spouse is we overcompensate in a lot of ways and we think we're being helpful. And, and sometimes it's not because these conversations aren't happening. And so I think that there has to be a deeper level of just understanding and respect, and it can't be us against them. And I think we've sort of created an us against them. And in a way where civilians um, kind of feel like, well, I support, I support. And it's like, okay, support, you know, with a 10% discount, support with hiring, you know, like 10 employees that are military connected. That's helpful. I don't, I'm not saying don't do some of those things. Don't show appreciation, but understanding is different than appreciation. I think that's kind of your point. Well, yeah. And then also understanding that you're not going to understand uh, someone mm-hmm. else's experience, right? That, I think that's a big yeah. problem we have in society is people go, oh, I get it. I get it. Like, no, no, mm-hmm. you don't. And that's okay. It's okay that you don't get it. Let's have a yeah. conversation so we can learn from each other. You know, it, it's just something that bugs me. And then the other thing too, from, from an employer side, um, and this goes both ways. We talked about this earlier. You know, when you get a veteran, you know, you're most likely getting, again, what we said earlier, someone who is understanding of service and wants to serve you're also some getting someone who understands teamwork on a on on a, a elite level, right? I've said this before. Even with all the issues in the military, it's still the best team on the planet, right? Mm-hmm. It just is. Um, so it's like you know, when I talk to employers, it's like change your mindset. It's not just about skills. It's what would you do with someone who's insanely dedicated to serving those around them and understand what what it is to be part of a team? Could you use someone in your organization like that? I mean, w- w- that's mm-hmm. what the conversation should be changed to. You can teach a skill. Mm-hmm. All right. You can't teach that level of teamwork and service all the time. You can inspire it and, and it can become infectious. Right. So anyway, I'm, I didn't mean to go off the rails here. It's just <laughs> that question sparked earlier. Um, and I wanted to ask it, Howie, did you want to dive in on this too? Well, I, I, and I think an, uh, uh, something we have to, we have to really, you know, be, be uh, candid about, I know how you feel about veterans Lee, um, but the, the fact of the matter is when you're going into the workforce um, in most places, you know, it's driven by the need to, to, to make profit, to, right. to drive revenue, mm-hmm. to be successful, right? To build the business, right? And uh, so I, I think what, what as, as transitioning veterans, what we have to be better at is understanding how we can translate what we did in the military and the skills and the, and the, and the, and the talents and capabilities that we developed, but bring it into the workforce that's now going to help that future employer be successful and accomplish what they need to accomplish, right? Um, so we just can't, re, we can't just rest on what we did in the military and For say, sure. hey, um, I, I know how to lead or I, I, I am a great team player. The, the key is understanding what that business is about and how can we bring value to them by applying what we've learned in the military, right? 
That's a good point. I, so I think that's a challenge that that mm-hmm. a lot of us face in that transition process is is learning how to just kind of change the conversation of understanding what that future employer, what his or her needs are, what the organization's needs are, and how we're going to help them accomplish what they want to accomplish based on what we've learned in our experience in the military. One thing you you, you brought up earlier, Richelle, that I'd really like, because I know you do work in the area of resilience, and and I kind of, I, I caught, you know, the, uh, the, the, the little bit of the thought of how parents can be a little bit um, do too much for their children. And in that, unfortunately, we're, we think we're, we do it out of love. Most of us, mm-hmm. we do it out of caring. We do it because we want, don't want them to face, <laughs> you know, to have any hardship, but in, in, in essence, by doing that, we're actually hurting them more than we're helping them. Mm-hmm. I'd like to like to t- have a little bit more conversation about that and what you're, what you've learned and how you're, you're helping parents navigate that process. Cause I think that is a challenge we're having in today's society. Look, Lee and I see it as we coach uh, uh, youth sports. Um, we see it in the school systems where many, many parents are so overprotective of their children to the detriment of the child's development. Mm-hmm. Um, and certainly in their ability to become resilient and overcome adversity. Um, and then unfortunately, if they don't develop those muscles and those skills as children and then adolescents and, and you know, late age teenagers, it's really going to show up as they become young adults in the workforce. What, what do you see in there, Rochelle? Right. And, you know, just to piggyback kind of on that thought is when you have to learn it as an adult, it's so much harder your emotions aren't regulated because you haven't had all that practice. And so I will often say to parents or to even friends, when I see it happening, even at a, you know, at a peer to peer level, we can't get in the way. We can't block the lessons that God or the universe or whatever you believe in has for that individual. And if we're rescuing, we're getting in the way of that plan. And I, and I absolutely see that. And it, it's hard not to overcompensate. It's hard not to lean in because we love and we care and we want to solve and we have this ability and it goes back to kind of service as well, right? How am I serving my children? How am I serving my friends? How am I serving my family? How am I jumping in and just getting it done? Because I mean, realistically, I think you'll see a lot of control issues in military families because without control, without order, without things, things get missed. And so we'd rather just jump in and get it done. So it gets done correctly versus letting it play out and letting that experience happen. And I can tell you right now, every time, and you look at like just emotion regulation in general, you think of like emotions on a, like a, a, a scale, right. And you go through an experience and you're going to kind of, here's the top of the scale, here's the bottom of the scale. And you want your emotions to kind of just go. Um, in a normal way. Right. But if it starts to peak and then you block it, well, then the next time it's going to peak higher and then you block it again, you have to let the experience go all the way through how they have to experience Mm. that emotion all the way through. So it comes back down naturally. So they can start seeing that emotional curve and start regulating their emotions themselves. But if we're continuing jumping in and blocking that and rescuing, then each time it's going to get harder and it's going to peak higher and higher and higher. And that's when we have emotional dysregulation. That's when we have problems that when we, that's when we have these crises that we can't manage. And so we really do need to get, get better at leaning in and letting the hard things be hard. And, and, and Rochelle, uh, you know, I'll add to that. And you please tell me if you disagree, you know, when this becomes a generational issue, 
Um, what ends up happening, in my opinion, is that a you know a parent will say, "Well, I when when my kid hurts, I hurt," which is totally true. Okay, mm-hmm. but the problem is, you might say, "Well, I don't want them to feel that kind of pain, so I'm going to protect them." And the truth is, what you're really doing, in my opinion, is you're saving yourself from that pain because that's mm-hmm. pain they need to go through. And it's mm-hmm. with that said, as a parent, it's insanely hard to know your kid's going to fail and to let your kid fail. Okay. But, but then I come back to what is, what is love here, right? Is love Mm -hmm. protecting them? So you don't have to feel that pain. They don't have to feel that pain or is love allowing them to feel that pain at seven or eight so that when they are 17 or 18, they can deal with this adversity. And we are seeing this play out in real time in youth sports with the suicide rate rising. Um, and, And, you know, how he talks about all the time and when kids get to college and they cannot handle if they got a B or a C for the first time, um, it's because they've been protected or or pushed too hard in some cases mm-hmm. um, to not deal with adversity. Failure is the world's greatest teacher. We want to embrace that as much as possible and stop banking on, you know, to be embarrassed by your failures and to avoid failure. That That is not a pathway to success. Failure sucks. It never feels good. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I've always said to people, you shouldn't jump up and down when you fail. Go, I, I failed. Like that's not, that's not the point. How you respond to it is who you are, and yeah. it's not what happens to you. Anyway, that was a little bit of soapbox for me. Well, but, and it's it, yeah. it's not only how the individual responds to it, but how those around him respond right. to it. Right. Let's think about coaches. Let's think about parents. And and I know this is a this Great is a point. tough thing to do. What I'm about to say, but. You know, if we could just change the, the connotation, what we, the, the thoughts and feelings we, we associate with failure to, you know, if we're thinking, I think if we're thinking the right way, it's not failure is not bad. It's an opportunity to learn, grow and develop. Totally. But unfortunately, we don't view it that way. We view failure as something that's bad, something that's wrong, something I screwed up, something I, you know, didn't do. But if we can, if, if as parents as as employers as coaches if we can um accept the fact that if the if the child if the individual the player is given their absolute best effort Mm. and Mm. and doing the very best that they possibly can we can't we can't expect them to accomplish things they're not capable of accomplishing right um, but what we can do is we can help them learn grow and develop and i think that's the challenge we as parents as employers and as coaches face in today's society is, is, uh, is creating an environment of trust and love and caring that enables folks to take a little bit of risk and maybe not accomplish the outcome, the desired outcome initially and learn, grow and develop, but teach them the process of how to get to that desired outcome, not just focused on, on the outcome. I don't know if that may, to me, it's about a process. It's about a system of teaching people to give their best effort, to, to work hard, to, to put in the hard work, knowing that eventually if they keep doing that, they're going to get where they want to go anyway. Does, Does that make sense? Yeah. And you know, um, when you were talking, Howie, I kept thinking, how does this apply to military leaders? Because we're told failure is not an option. Mm, there right. will be no failure. And I can't imagine any more fearful thing than a, a life of military 
where you're not allowed to fail. And now you're supposed to go home and model something different. Yeah, it's, um, look, we've gone through, I think we've gone through cycles in, in the military where, um, you know, we, we, we the, the, the term I grew up as a young officer is a no fail environment, right? And then it, mm-hmm. then it transitioned. Um, we got away from that and then we, we, and that's what created the whole after action review process, right? Mm-hmm. You go through a training, uh, uh, you go into a training uh, environment and you do things. And if you don't accomplish the outcome that you wanted, you come, you come back and you talk about, okay, what went well, what didn't go well, what did we learn from that and how are we going to apply those lessons learned and go back and retrain. And you keep retraining until you get to the point where now you're proficient um, and you've, and you've developed the skills that you want to develop. Right. I, I, you know, unfortunately I, I, from what I understand, I've been out of the military for a long time now, but I think we've gotten back to the no fail environment where when I was a mid grade to more senior officer, we had, we had moved a little bit beyond that. Mm -hmm. And look, and, and it, and here's the other challenge too, right. And it's, it's for, for, for military leaders, it's for parents, it's for, for coaches, whatever you've got to, you've got to create an environment where people can learn, grow and develop. And if you're not doing that, then I don't think you're creating the most healthy environment. And that's certainly true of, of the military because we're not going to get everything right the first time. It's just not going to happen. Mm-hmm. So, but, but unfortunately, um, I, again, we, we cycle through this as, as, mm-hmm. a, as a military where we, we learn that lesson, we adjust. And I think we're back to now where, mm-hmm. where, where people are not taking any risk because they don't want, they, they feel like they're not going to get the promotion. They're not going to get the next job that they're, they're looking because they're not going to be as competitive as they want to be. I'm, I'm less concerned about that now and more concerned about how we apply it though to, to parents as transitioning veterans and helping how we can take better mm-hmm. care of, of our, of our spouses and our children. And hopefully we can learn from some of the things you're sharing with us. Uh, I, anything else that, that I, I love the concept of unpacking your emotional ruck, Rochelle, I think that's just mm-hmm. a phenomenal title. What else can you share with us that's in that, in that workbook that might be helpful to our audience? Cause I think that's just a, I love that concept. So um, unpacking your emotional ruck really came from Um, originally was this unspoken stress that I was experiencing around being a military spouse. So it originally started as her ruck, right? Her ruck, like, because, you know, no disrespect to our male military spouses, but, um, you know, it's the majority of military spouses are female. Um, That's just like the, the odds are. And there was a lot of stress that was happening and not an avenue to really discuss it or to have those real conversations. And then the more I was having those conversations, the more I was like, well, this really isn't unique to me or to military spouses or to females or to any of those things. We're all carrying this emotional backpack or emotional rucksack where we wake up every day and our long-term vulnerabilities, our short-term short-term vulnerabilities are all packed in and we're carrying them around. Like you said, you know, somebody cuts you off in traffic. Well, if you're not feeling good, you've had a bad day, your response is going to be different than had you just like, hey, this is a good day. No big deal. I can have some understanding of this person. We, It's all impacted by what the weight we're carrying. And so that's one of the things that I do in my workshop is I literally put a rucksack on their back 
have them write on rocks and bricks, the stressors that they're carrying. And I make them stand there with like a really uncomfortable long amount of time to really weigh that in. But um, one of the ultimate groundbreaking things for me was in this foundation of mindfulness that kind of comes along with that workshop as well. in the idea that we're not meant to chase pleasure and we're not meant to avoid pain. We're meant to be in the experience with the pleasure and with the pain that life brings us. But we don't see that in a lot of people, right? Especially transitioning military folks. Um, we feel like we have to, and I, and I'm not saying don't plan for positive things. We do need to plan for positive things. We do need to accumulate those positive experiences, but if we're only chasing pleasure, Ooh, that's like addiction. That's problematic. That's those intense, um, intense kind of me when I was out of the military, right? Like this, let's just live rapid and fast and we die, we die. And, and that's not healthy. And if we avoid pain, then then we don't leave our house and we think the world is in a safe place. And so that's some of the things we talk about in that workbook. You know, Rochelle, I I have a lot of yin yangs around my office in my home. And, you know, it's one of those things like it's simple when you look at it, you start to meditate on it and study on it. How can you know pleasure if you don't know pain? Mm. How can you know happiness if you don't know sadness? Right. And then the balance that, the yin yang represents between those things. You, if you go extreme towards one, you, you, it doesn't work that way. And it, it, it will lead to the other eventually, no matter what. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah. I think about that constantly. Um, and then that brings me to this point, success and failure. How can you know success if you don't know failure and vice versa? And then on top of that, this is another thing. I challenge people to do this all the time. How do you define success and how do you define failure? We have in society, in my opinion, really screwed up definitions of those words, right? Especially, you know, we talk about social media all the time. What is success today? I mean, you ask an 18 year old that the answer is almost shocking, right? So, so I challenge all the listeners. This is not something I can, I can give, right? You, you have to decide what that word, uh, both those words, success and failure means to you. Now, again, Howie, when you're talking military and a combat operation, it's probably pretty black and white what success versus failure is. Okay. So I'm not, I'm not trying to equate it to that, but if you have been operating in an environment like that. Uh, I don't think the world outside of that situation, uh, and you guys can tell me if I'm wrong, works that way all the time. Right. So you really have to decide is, is what is failure? Is it losing the game just to use sports analogy, or is it you lost the game and you didn't learn anything? One of those is a bigger failure. And, and again, the yin yang, that loss the failure teaches you the success. How do you know winning if you don't know losing? So anyway, just some philosophical. Well, I, I, and I think the challenge is the yeah. is is we become as a society just very outcome focused, right? Yeah. And we're we have these outcomes that we're driving for. Um, and we focus on just whatever it takes to accomplish that that outcome. And sometimes we lose focus on the process of what will get you there. Um, and and to use your combat analogy, you know, if, if you think about and or let's use a sports analogy, right? The game, the game is the is a culminating event, right? But it's what you do in practice that's going to determine totally. what happens in the games, right? So if you're not challenging yourself, if you're not learning, you're not growing, you're not developing. In, in in practice to develop the skills that'll help you 
be successful in the game and we only focus on things that will help us win as opposed to what are the things we need to do to make us the most competitive we can be right, right? then uh I, I so i mean i i think that's what we're that's one of the challenges we we face now how I'll, I'll give you a, a really great example with my own kid we're talking about youth here right and um he had these kind of practice tests or these these kind of homework assignments coming home for a test and uh, he was really getting upset that he wasn't getting the answers right like visibly upset audibly upset as eight-year-olds do and my wife said something so profound that, and for some reason i just had never heard anybody say this and it made total sense she goes uh, uh logan the practice is so you can mess up so that you do right on the test and i remember thinking man she just worded that so simply that that is the lesson like you're supposed to screw up on these these homework assignments now so that you can prepare for the test and i could see it kind of click on him for the first time and then I wondered, man, how many mothers and fathers are not saying that and they're demanding 100% all the time, which is not realistic, mm -hmm. right? So my wife had just taught him this, you're supposed to screw up. <laughs> <laughs> you know what I mean? Like you're yeah. supposed to screw up. And then same thing, like when the test comes back, uh, now this is how we parent. If he gets a 97, if he gets an 87, you know, and he did his best, mm -hmm. we're okay with that. I don't need 100% all the time. Now, if you, if you don't get a good grade and you didn't try your hardest because you didn't prepare, that's a problem. But again, this comes back to the success versus failure definition. Success to me is not a perfect score. It's you did the work, you studied, you did your best. That's a more valuable lesson than getting 100% on something. And, and I see far too many, again, Rochelle, you could talk to this, way too many parents demanding perfection. I mean, it, it it's not reality. I don't, I don't, you know, I don't know where that came from. And and they'll say, well, I'm hardening them up and uh, I'm preparing them and they'll get a good job and good money. Again, is that how you define success? So again, th this this could go on forever. Um, <laughs> it's just, I, I think what I'm trying to say to the listening audience is just just take a moment and reflect on this, right? Conversation of, of mm -hmm. how, how are you doing this in your family? You've got to do what's, what you feel is right for you. We're, we're not, I'm not going to assume to tell any family what is right or wrong um, in the current topic. <laughs> there are some right <laughs> and wrong things. <laughs> um, but yeah, I wanted, I just wanted to say that. So go ahead. Howie, sorry. Yeah. So, so Rochelle, you mentioned in, you know, before we actually started the, the recording that, that your husband is about 18 to eight, roughly 18 months out from retirement. So what are you guys doing now? How, how is he preparing for his transition? What are the things he's doing right now? And how are you, and how are you guys working as a team, um, and as a family to prepare for that? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, so many times throughout our um, our military life together, um, I have been in the position where I'm like, but I know these things, right? As a mental health counselor, I know these things. This is the way it should be. And then he, there's two there's two of us, and so he's you know working long hours. He's already at work. He's working till they're they're doing and day training into night training and all the things and. Um, so there's a lot of avoidance happening in our or in our family. There's a lot of conversations that aren't happening that need to be happening that when we, when the conversations, you know, broached, it's kind of like, well, maybe here, maybe there, a lot of uncertainty. I'm not getting any invitations for any transitioning support. Um, I've got zero 
invitations for transitioning support from the military. I happen to know people. I happen to go seek them out online or virtually and, and educate myself on those things. But in reality, you know, we're still in it. We're still in the thick of it and, and being able to prepare and plan accordingly. We don't have the, we don't have a day off where we have childcare and that we can sit down and listen to experts and things like that. I think he went to um, one workshop it was a two-day workshop. He was only able to go to one day of it. Um, I, I asked him, am I invited? He's like, um, I guess, I guess you could go. I'm like, well, is there childcare? He's like, no, there's not freaking childcare. It's during working hours. You know, it's like <laughs> you're, the kids are supposed to be doing something. I'm like, oh, well, maybe I'm, maybe that that's telling me I'm not invited as much or it's not, it's not an easy path. And so, you know, um, it, there's, there's definitely the, I'm not sure I'm thinking about this or this. Um, and in my mind, I'm like, Ooh, I, I don't want him to be in a position that he has to just do something. Right. And that's what you see a lot with transitioning people, the people that I'm I, in my mental health practice, I, I counsel, you know, transitioning service members and, and spouses in individual practice. And a lot of them are like, well, this is the wise move. I'm going to do the wise move. And then I'll figure out the passion move next. And I'm always so cautious of going, but will you, and what right. will that experience feel like during that wise move when you have no interest in doing that, but you're skilled and trained to do that. That would be like me stepping into that first finance job when I got out of the military, but I only went into finance because they showed me all the jobs laminated on their desk and said, pick one. Right. And I thought, well, what's going to help me in the future? Oh, accounting. That's a good job. I'll do finance. I had no interest in finance. It, this doesn't bring any joy to my life. And then I got out and did yet another thing that I thought I was supposed to do. And right. so that's kind of what it's looking like in our family. We're definitely in the, in the problem zone. If you were like to red zone, yellow zone, green zone, this, we're definitely in the red zone for sure. So I think that's a great lesson learned for, for folks in our audience then, right? Is, um, and I know that there's a tendency to, to focus just on you as a transitioning service member, but I think it's really important that you bring your spouse and your and your children into the process and be considerate of them, include them. I think if you do that and do that effectively, that could really make for a much more uh, a smoother and effective transition, right? Uh, it would help me out tremendously. I <laughs> I said the other day, you know, we were talking about getting new um, new blinds for our house, and I'm like, are we staying here? Oh. Oh, did you, did you want to move? Are you thinking about moving? I'm like, are you thinking about moving? Like, let's have this conversation. Yeah. You know, Rochelle, you're making a great point in all the, all the episodes we've done here. Here's a family of someone who's already transitioned and they're still experiencing the, the challenges of transition, even though you've been through it. So it, it just goes to show you, there is no easy transition right? And every transition is different. And even when you literally have someone bounded by marriage that has done this, it's still hard, um, which to kind of bookend this episode is why you need to prepare, is why you need to have mentors, is why you need to listen to the show, is why, is why you need to do things like that. Um, I think it's so important. And then, and then just going back really quick to what you said about kind of finding the job to get by before the passion job, that completely echoes what you said earlier about military mindset of just fix the problem in front of me now. Um, you're not trained to take a moment to think about yourself. And we say this, we say this a lot on this show. When you are transitioning, the mission is your family. 
That is the mission is taking care of your family. And part of that is taking care of yourself, which as um, you know, Howie has always woken me up. It's very hard when you've been taking care of others, your whole service. So that is the transition of the mission is, is from the military to your family. If you focus on that, I think how we, you know, we've said this, that the results tend to be more favorable than if you don't. Um, if you just focus on the getting by and figuring it out, that it creates probably more problems than it's worth. Um, this is assuming you have a family. So, Rochelle, before I move on to the final question, um, every guest on our show, I create a book title for. Now, you've you've made several of your own, and I'm not going to lie, you have some pretty good book titles already. <laughs> but based on our conversation, I've come up with two more for you. You can use these whenever you want. Um, they're very similar. Uh, these ones are not funny. I, these are ones I, I read over and over again. Now I'm thinking, I'm like, this is. The, there's a lot of different levels to this. The first one I have is Voice of the Volunteer, mm-hmm. right? Which you kind of represent because you volunteered in your life in several ways, uh, being a, a, a obviously active duty person, not so much volunteered as a spouse, but you kind of do. And mm-hmm. then the things you do in society. And then the kind of the offshoot of that, I put the sound of service. Um, things we don't talk about enough, but as a speaker and as an author, I think you are the voice of the volunteer. And that's something that, uh, we need to hear more of in this society. So again, not one of my more funny ones, Howie, but I still think that that summed up kind of the conversation. Yeah, um, it's It's good. Thank you. I like yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. Take them, take them flyer. You don't, I don't, I, yeah, obviously do what you need with them. <laughs> uh, <laughs> the, the final question, Rochelle, we ask all of our guests is, you know, pivotal moments media is all about mental fitness, mental health. Um, and like, just like going to the gym, everybody practices that a little bit differently. So I want to know, how do you practice your own mental fitness on a day-to-day basis? Like, what is your experience with that? Share that with our audience. So one of the big themes that I'm hearing a lot around self-care and mental fitness and all the things that it takes in order to do that, right. Is that Um, people are leaning a lot in just rest and recovery. And I'll say it, I'll say it every time I get a platform, rest and recovery is not self-care. That is literally just getting back to capacity, right? Where you have a little bit of capacity to do something else. And so for me, what I need to do in order to do all the things that I need to do is I time block really well. And in those time blocks, I put nothing in some of those time blocks sometimes. And that nothing means I get to do absolutely nothing. It means I get to to pick and choose in that moment where my joy will send me, whether it's just go for a walk, whether it's watch a show I haven't seen yet that everybody's talking about, whether it's read a book, whether it's go get a massage. And so I have time blocks of nothing. And that's one of the things that I know for myself, I have to do because I'm one of those that if I people too much, I need to recharge. And so every time I take a trip, I pencil and recharge time afterwards. It's really about knowing, like I'll say it all the time. I should have it on a t-shirt. Know thyself, know thyself. What do you need specifically? Because what Rochelle needs is different than what, you know, how he needs or Lee needs or somebody else needs. And so for me, um, recharge in a way that's feeding, feeding me not just recovering me. And if I am at at the point where I need rest and recovery, that's something else. I need to add something on top of that end line to feed me as well. So that's one of the things I do. I love spa days. I love talking entrepreneurship. I love having people excited about ideas. And so if somebody has ideas and they come to me with their idea, that is like gold for me because I like, I get recharged by hearing the possibilities that they're thinking of. And so that's kind of the things that I do. Um, And if there is an event 
that is offered, I try to go to it. So if there's a, a military spouse event, if there's an entrepreneur entrepreneur event and I can go, um, going and stepping in, even though I know it can be exhausting at the end of all the things, um, Oh, every, every time, every time I'm always grateful that I've done it. I, I love the know thyself thing. And again, and you're expunging on that is, is brilliant, right? You, everyone is different and you got to know what charges your tank. Um, and there's a difference between your tank being empty and charging your tank. I love that. Uh, just, just again, reiterating what you said there, you said it way better than that. I'm just, <laughs> just, just want to say that, but. Yeah, Rochelle, you've been a great guest today. We really had a good time talking. Yeah, a lot of perspectives here, and um, especially from the family front, uh, which is something Howie and I are pretty dedicated to. So thanks so much for being here. Thank you for having me. Yeah, I want to echo that, Rochelle. I, I, again, I, I saw a post of yours on LinkedIn that that really caught my attention. We had a follow-on conversation, and um, and I just love some of the some of the concepts and the thoughts and perspective that you brought out here today. Um, really, really valuable for I think transitioning service members, spouses, and and family members. And I I really hope that uh, that folks take the time to listen and and uh, and implement some of the things you shared with us. I would highly recommend, and we'll. We'll, we'll in the uh, in the show notes we'll give you all the different ways to to reach out and find find Rochelle but I think the workbooks that Rochelle has put together could be just absolutely tremendous um, uh, uh, things for a positioning um, family to to have in their in their rucksack and to uh, and to use and work with I, I think I just want to thank you for being here and and sharing all that with us today yeah thank you guys well thank you and if you received as much value from our time today as we did please share it with a friend like subscribe leave us a review uh, on whatever platform you're listening to uh Rochelle we should absolutely throw you out here too where can people go to find you obviously how we said LinkedIn is there any other places people should uh, look to find you yeah, LinkedIn is usually the best place to to get me. I'm going to see those direct messages. Um, I also have a website, RochelleFutch.com. And so most of my mental health work is is there. Um, you can connect with me on the site as well. There you go. That's Rochelle, not Michelle Futch, F-U-T-C-H. Uh, so check that out. Uh, and again, if you'd like to contact us directly with a question, comment, guest recommendation, uh, if you need someone to speak to about your transition, mental struggles, or experience, you can always email us at howie at pivotalmomentsmedia.com or DM us directly on social media. We would love to hear from you. Uh, finally, make sure to check out pivotalmomentsmedia.com and our channels that focus on overcoming adversity in sports, how inspirational women can inspire other women, building mental fitness in the workplace, how artists of all types overcome adversity and strengthen their mental fitness. And our mental fitness education center is there for more inspirational education and entertaining content. So, for Rochelle Futch and Howie Cohen, I'm Lee Elias. Thanks so much for listening, and we'll see you next time on Life After the Military. Have a great week, everybody. Mm -hmm.